Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the TLS podcast. I'm Sia Lenarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me as we look back through this year's podcast episodes, plucking conversations as we go, covering literature, film, art, and much more. This week, we will be looking back on the legacy of the French filmmaker Jacques Tati, the poetry of Anne Carson, and we'll take in some new developments at the Coliseum. Let's start with the beautifully minimalist photographs of Walker Evans, which capture rural churches, rusty rotten wrecks of cars and anonymous and distant faces. The critic and novelist Joyce Carol Oates discussed his approach. Walker Evans' aesthetic ideal was simplicity, almost a kind of geometrical orderliness to the composition of a photograph. He did not believe in anything like the equivalent of photoshopping, (laughs) you know, to him, the, the object and the image had a kind of sanctity in itself. So he might just take a photograph of a tattered billboard, or it could be a barbershop, often with no one, no one in a room, and the room characterizes, in a way, the people who are not there. The word um, purity or, or variance of, of purity comes up a lot when we talk about Evans, doesn't it? Yes, and I believe he was the first photographer to consider the composition of a photograph without recourse to its actual subjects. That is, he could as easily take a photograph of a tattered billboard or some rusted tools arranged in a geometrical way than a portrait of some, you know, famous politician. To him, the composition of the photograph was the aesthetic ideal rather than the content or the subject. Joyce, I love the way that you uh, it's all tied into uh, other American artists of the time, particularly maybe William Carlos Williams, um, you mentioned, and some of the music of Charles Ives. And William Carlos Williams, his famous thing was no ideas, but in things, wasn't it? You look at the object, you don't impose whatever you may be thinking about the object. Is that Yes, no idea? ideas, but in things. 
Yes. Walker Evans does have photographs of people and he does have photographs that seem to suggest a connection with American history, commemorative photographs of, of the Civil War era. So it isn't just no ideas, but in things, you know, through his whole career. But that's the bedrock. He managed to, I mean, it's, it's quite rare in a sense. He managed to get through his whole career without falling back on or, or just getting involved in celebrity portraiture. There's a fruitful comparison you make in the piece. I'm not sure if it comes from the book or, or from you, but um, between Evans's work and his famous contemporary, Alfred Stieglitz. Yes, Stieglitz was much more of an experimenter with photographs. He did things that suggest um, dreamlike or it's sort of the reverse of the simplicity. Stieglitz also has many, many beautiful portraits of, of George O'Keefe. And they they seem to me very, very beautiful. Walker Evans may have been creating in Stieglitz a kind of rival, someone against whom he could measure himself. Well, because in in a sense, I mean, Alfred Stieglitz, when you look at his his photographs, I don't know whether perhaps the word you were looking for was that there is this really self-consciously artistic act of composing and, and creating an overall mood and, and all of that sort of thing, which I wonder whether would Walker Evans have objected to his work even being called art rather than, say, reportage? I mean, the context, I suppose, of his, the nature of his employer presumably would have influenced how he felt about what he was doing, whether it was a, a government program or something for Fortune magazine. But I wonder whether he felt that this was not art, this was reportage. Well, I think it was art. He was very much influenced in, in some way by Baudelaire and by Flaubert, and he was very interested in poetry. I mean, he, he wasn't, he wasn't in, a, in a sense, any sort of a primitive person, you know. I think he felt that what he was doing was a different kind of art. Can we talk about that one a bit? Because I was, I could see the Flaubert, um, you know, he wants, he wants to be objective, all of those things, he wants to be naturalistic. I completely can see the Flaubert, but the Baudelaire surprised me a bit more. What was it from Baudelaire that he, um, that he took, do you think? Well, I think that he probably didn't know Baudelaire that well. I think he acknowledges that he hadn't read that much of Baudelaire. But what he particularly liked about Baudelaire was the focus upon things that are marginal or broken or something lying in the gutter. You could take a photograph of some very interesting decaying things on a street in the gutter and make a work of art out of that. So that idea of seeing beauty, not just in kind of the obvious things we might find beautiful, but in sort of decay and rubbish and detritus, that kind of thing. That was really, uh, I think that was all that it was. One thing I found very interesting and surprising about Walker Evans, and I did not know it before reading Savannah Alper's biography, is that Walker Evans didn't take any photographs of nature. He doesn't have the sort of Ansel Adams reverence for the natural world that he found nature boring and not a subject for art. I was really sort of stunned. What an interesting, weird idea. For an American artist as well, not, not to take any notice of the landscape is quite something. I know, it? and I'll give you this ast- astonishing example. Instead of taking photographs of the desert and of cacti, which I think are so beautiful, and photographs of the desert are infinitely beautiful to me, he would take a photograph of a cactus that had been defaced by somebody carving his initials in it, or we would say, you know, vandalizing a cactus plant. And Walker Evans would find that interesting because the human being had done something to nature. So he might take a photograph of that, or he took photographs of, instead of the landscape, the beautiful trees and the 
contours of the hills, he would take the same sort of photograph, but a rusted old junkyard. Next, we're revisiting a dark, difficult masterpiece, not our words, but those of the film and literature critic Keith Hopper, discussing the film Midnight Cowboy from 1969. Here he explains. I think it was a slow burn success. There was too many problematic qualities to it. I think it was new. It's part of the the new Hollywood, the new American cinema, the breakdown of the studios, the relaxing of um, the censorship code. So it's a film that captures Hollywood in transition. I'm not sure that people knew what to make of it. Uh, Ebert is reliable, I think. He said it comes heartbreakingly close to being the movie he wanted to be. He thought that the performances stood out. John Voight as Joe, the, the stud, and Dustin Hoffman as the, the ailing conman that he hooks up with. But that he criticised Schlesinger, who was English, born and brought up in Hampstead, that he didn't really understand the American culture that he was, he was making his film about, and that he should have let the performances carry the film instead. What does he try to have, have it here? He dropped those performances into an offensively trendy, gimmick-ridden, tarted-up, vulgar exercise in fashionable cinema. To stick with Ebert for a second, what's interesting about him is that he, as you point out, he re-watches the film in, in 1994, so 25 years after uh, the film came out. And he says that it remains one of... So he sort of... It sort of seems like he's changing here a little bit. He says, uh, it remains one of a handful of films that stay in our memory after the others have evaporated. So that's not to say that he he loves it now at all, but he's saying that he appreciates something new in it. Um, and he may not have meant this as a challenge when, when he said it, but you sort of took it as one, uh, didn't you? You, you? you start your piece by mentioning a, a Vox Pop. Yeah, so when, when I was asked to do this, as I said, I was interested in reading the book by Franco, but... My memory of the film, I saw it 20 years ago, and I didn't like it. I, I had a, a sense of it being slightly sleazy, seedy, which is probably the point. Um, but I felt uncomfortable about it. So I queued it up that night, and I watched it with my wife, and I didn't change my mind either. I still think it was a little seedy, it was a little sleazy. It feels very dated. And yet, I think Ebert is right. There are moments in it that are groundbreaking. Uh, so I was interested then in that idea of how we remember, how we watch and, and review films. Uh, and I brought in in that Pauline Kale actually, because Kale insisted she never, the great New York critic, she never watched the film twice. What she wanted to convey was the experience of spectatorship. She gets the plot wrong all the time. <laughs> I mean, she is standing in for us, sitting in the dark, eating her ice cream. And, <laughs> You know, we, we don't always pick up exactly what's going on in our first viewing. So it was interesting to revisit in this way. And I thought, well, how do we remember films? Is Ebert right? So I did a Vox Pop with friends and colleagues. I've got a new job and it was a nice icebreaker with, with my new colleagues to say, what do you remember? But, but don't, don't cheat. You know, don't Google it. Don't look at clips on YouTube. And, and it, it kind of is interesting just to see what people do remember. So a film historian um, remembered Dustin Hoffman wearing a white suit in the opening of the film. I had no recollection of that whatsoever. And in fact, when I watched it again, it passed me by and I had to rewind. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's, I mean, that's one of the things that I most remember is sort of his, his increasingly filthy white suit, which is sort of like a kind of a fallen first communicant. Yes, 
so I, I mean, when did you last see it? You saw it 10 years um, ago. So I first saw it about 10 years ago, I reckon. And then probably only last year, actually. I was going to try and watch it again before we spoke today, but um, I didn't get round to it. And possibly that a third time would have been <laughs> would have been too much. Yeah. Um, but it is it is very compelling, this idea, isn't it, about uh, the way we piece together a film afterwards from the memories that we have of it. I was watching... Um, have you seen Room 237? Yeah. A documentary by Rodney Asher, and it's about The Shining, and it's about all of the theories that different people have um, attached to the film, you know, that it's an apology for um, for the massacre of, of, of Native Americans or uh, a, a reckoning with the Holocaust. Um, and it sort of, in a way, doesn't really matter what the film itself was by this point because it meant all of this to these people, and they have built they have built a whole life on it, you know, a life for this work. Yeah. And I think when Roger Ebert revisits it 25 years later, it had just been accepted into the Library of Congress as a film worth preserving. And I suppose when you look back on it now, it doesn't really matter whether you like the film or not, or whether it's any good or not. Its timing was good. You know, a month after it was released, the Stonewall riots broke out. And I suppose 25 years on, you look back and say, well, it was groundbreaking. It raises the issue of homosexuality in a way we hadn't really seen on screen before. Now, that's not to say it's representation isn't without problems. I mean, some people find it homophobic. And there's, you know, Frankel, Glenn Frankel, the author of the book, allows for that too. So it's interesting just to see that I suppose it marks a transitional moment. It seems to stand for something in the counterculture that will be remembered, even if it's not. I think off the standard of, say, you mentioned Taxi Driver, Glenn Frankel, um, very late in the book, compares it. He said the legacy is the way that it initiates a lot of these New York films from like Toulouse and Dog Day Afternoon and so on. Um, but he mentions Taxi Driver and he picks up a really important point about it that I hadn't got on my first viewing is that Joe Buck, the, the cowboy in the film, the, the stud, the gigolo, is um, was in the army. Now, if he was in the army in in that period, presumably he had been in Vietnam. It's never mentioned. And there's only one shot of him in his uniform. He goes back to his little sleepy town in Texas to discover that his grandmother who raised him is, is dead, her shop is closed up, and he's homeless. And you get a sense, it comes out more strongly, I think, in, in the novel, um, that uh, he felt at home in the army amongst the company of men but he, it is a, a novel really and a film about loneliness but we only get that one snapshot of Joe in his uniform and at the end Len Frankel makes a very valid comparison between it and Taxi Driver that it's both about traumatised Vietnam vets you know so it's, it's an interesting film the, the more you talk about it everyone is picking something different out of it so I suppose in that sense it, it, it is a, a successful piece we also had some fantastic poetry this year. First, a new poem by Anne Carson. Sure, I was loved. Sure, I was loved. I tame you. No, you don't. You were nude. You were intangible. You were unconvincing. You were vague. You claimed you were born from angels. You stank of the horrors of war. You blazed with ruthless pride. Your full loose mouth blazed. You had a fruit bloom. You bloomed like a cannibal, ready to devour or be devoured or both. You had your portrait painted as a butcher's block. 
yet you were not a still life. You were meat, but recently living. You had come with your own legs. I replaced your legs. I replaced your crotch, crotches, all of them. You were ghosting around as if a mystery of hymen. I undressed you. That is the only difference. Beyond that, there was little development between us. I used crutches, stilts, evisceration, plaster casts. I rooted your shoes. I tilted the stage. I knocked it apart. I combined you with other genders. I rolled up my sleeves. I showed you no tenderness. We might as well have been sexual or medical or archaeologists. I required you to clean up whatever mess we made. I used the mess again next day. I slowed your steps, inhibited your breathing, assaulted you with film score music. I littered the stage with open graves and you fell into them. Hilarious. I laughed at you. I made you walk on your hands without oxygen or effective friends. I made you build the floor you walked on. I blew your clothes off. I mangled your Orpheus scene. I threw someone else's thighs at you. I doused you with the waters of Lethe. I flattened you into a lozenge and stuffed you in my pocket. I shot all the arrows of King Darius's Persian army at you, then made you pick them all up. I tossed your skeleton off its slab. It smashed. I played with your skull. I got you chasing a nostalgic scrap of paper then turned out the lights and told the audience to go home. Beyond that, nothing was resolved between us. The legs were of various heights. You invited me into your golden age. I made you a stranger, a loser, an arabiste, an undocumented alien, an unclaimed hostage, a bad birthday gift. I had you eaten into by the human. I broke your energy. I invented your gravity. I pulled you out through your own peephole. No, you didn't. I tame you. No, you don't. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
In the summer, our classics editor, Mary Beard, was able to give us some good news from Rome, with new developments at the Colosseum poised to give visitors a hand when imagining what life may have looked like inside the walls during its prime. I know I wrote a book about the Colosseum, and in some ways I'm very interested in it. I've always thought that it was a a, a bit of a lousy tourist experience. I mean, it looks brilliant from the outside. And you know, up until the pandemic, you'd have seen queues, sometimes hours long, waiting to get into it. And when you got into it, it was all, well, frankly, a bit of a ruin, you know, and there, were, there weren't many places you could go. And you know, I used to often go and watch um, mums and dads, you know, and the kids had said they were being taken to Rome. Where do you want to go? I've got to go see the Colosseum. <laughs> and uh, they got in and you know, mums and dads were really working overtime to try to keep these kids' interest up because it just wasn't quite as good as they'd imagined. I mean, I was one of I was one of these kids, so I I, <laughs> I feel it only too strongly. <laughs> yeah, I think I was too. Because you get in and you think, well, where where were the lions? <laughs> I remember my dad saying, yes, they used to flood the whole place, and there were these incredible naval scenes, and I was just really struggling <laughs> to imagine it amid the dust. Yes, and you can see why the the sort of um, dress up gladiators who charge an extortionate amount to let you have your picture taken with them outside the Colosseum in one of Rome's great tourist attractions. You can see why they do such good business because when when <laughs> mum and dad and the kids come out, you know, mum and dad are desperate and they think 20 euros for one snap with a gladiator. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> but, you know, things are looking up. And I think what's partly been disappointing about the Colosseum in general on the inside has been that really there has been so few places you could go and what has just been opened up is the basements. The basements are actually quite exciting because they're where the animals were probably to some of the gladiators, uh, where they waited before they went up into the arena you know, through a, a, a carefully arranged you know, set of contraptions of lifts and pulleys and whatever. And what you're going to be able to do now is, is go down and see how that kind of substructure uh, of the, the Colosseum worked. I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit more impressive than downstairs at Downton, really. But it's got the same idea behind it. I mean, what, you know, what did it look like if you were um, one of the terrified victims of it? And the basements were were underneath what must have been a wooden floor, and there would have been trap doors in the wooden floor, and uh, many of the performers, if we can call them that, uh, would have emerged through through the floor to, to meet their fate. Um, so it gives you a much more rounded experience, but also I mean, you know, in a very simple way, it just gives you something more to do, a, a, another sort of vista on it, because I think that's been the real problem, that there's, you know, it's a bit mm. of a ruin and then there's not much to explore and most of the places you'd like to explore up to now have been... Uh, or at least since I've been visiting the Colosseum. It does make the Colosseum something where you'd actually recommend people might go, whereas in the past I've always said, enjoy it from the outside. (laughs) Well, and it's a huge space that they've opened up, this underground backstage. Uh, It's some 15,000 square metres, isn't it? And this is, I mean, you've hinted there with the trapdoors and and that sort of thing. It was There would have been 
this is where all of the amazing technology of the time would have been. So my dad trying to keep me interested uh, with stories about flooding it, uh, flooding the the stage with for naval battles. This is where all the pipes would have been and all of that. Uh, and he, your dad was absolutely right. Uh, it's still a mystery how they did that bit. I mean, we we do have a pretty good idea about how the um, the lifts and the pulleys and the ropes work to get up animals through the floor. No one's ever quite understood how they managed to flood the arena. In a way, the Colosseum's in a good place for flooding anything because it, it was built uh, on the site of Nero's private lake in his vast palace. And you know, it's, it's, it's pretty damp. If you go, One of the things I remember about going into um, the, the basements is that the, the water table's pretty high um, and it can be a bit soggy. How they managed to turn that into a full-scale lake uh, with a naval battle on it, heaven only knows. I mean, either they were brilliant, we don't quite know how, or the Romans were very easily impressed by (laughs) by, 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 (laughs) and a few model boats. (laughs) We also discussed the stories for adults and children of Russell Hoban, as we were joined by the novelist Margaret Drabble to consider his work and his reputation, based on books including Ridley Walker, The Mouse and His Child and the Francis series. He wrote in so many different genres, and none of them really the same. I mean, he he started life as a children's writer and as a copy editor. And then his adult novels, of which he wrote a lot, were sort of science fiction or futuristic or satirical about the times he was living in. But they were all at a very odd angle to reality. And he was rather like Anthony Burgess. People never knew what he was going to do next. And, I mean, they're all very full, full of references, full of kind of literary cameos and literary references and references to to artists. So I think maybe, you know, for that reason, you'd think he'd at least be worthy of the the backhanded compliment that he's a novelist's novelist, but he's not even that really either. He isn't. I, I was very surprised when I was reading these novels. I asked around amongst my acquaintance, most of whom are really quite well read in a broad way, and very few of them had read him and one or two didn't even know who he was. <laughs> and, and he would have been so annoyed by that. Uh, and there are the kind of people who would have read him, you would have thought. Perhaps um, it's because, the, because, first of all, it's only pretty recently that children's writing has been really taken in any way seriously, isn't it? And also science fiction, people have historically been very sniffy about speculative or science fiction. Perhaps it's, it was not only that he was difficult to pin down, but he was writing in rather un, you know, unfashionable genres as well, do you think? It could, be, it could be that, that he kind of fell between two stools. But I was very interested. I, I did ask my friend Nicholas Tucker, who is a professor of children's literature in his time, um, what he thought about it. And he said that he met Russell Hoban in the 1980s, I think he said, when children's writing was really on a high. And Hoban appeared at lots of conferences and was much admired for his children's writing. And so he did have a kind of a niche as a children's writer, but it didn't seem to spread or continue with his adult novels. Um, I mean, I I have to confess that I fall into the the category of person that would probably have, it would probably anger him most uh, in that I've only read Ridley Walker, which we'll we'll tackle in, in a moment. And I'd never heard of, of, of his children's work, really. I mean, I, partly maybe because I didn't grow up in, in this country, but I'd never heard of The Mouse and His Child from 1967, for example. So perhaps maybe before we turn to the adult novels, 
Um, perhaps you could briefly just tell us what that one's about, given that it is his most famous. Well, the, the mouse and his child is um, a very grim little story about two clockwork toys um, that go on a ghastly pilgrimage um, pursued by rats and crows and generally having a great suffering time. To tell you the truth, I haven't quite finished it because I found it so depressing <laughs> and I didn't read it when my children were small. And I, I kind of got to the end of the novels I was reading and then I put this to one side because there's something so um, so gloomy about it. Which is, I suppose, hardly surprising given that it is identified as, as a Holocaust novel. It prefigured, you say, you, it prefigured Art Spiegelman's mouse. Yes, it certainly did. And I wonder whether Art Spiegelman knew it. Um, but I'm not sure he intended it as a Holocaust novel. It's only after reading his adult Holocaust novels that it becomes kind of obvious that that's exactly what it is. I think if I'd read it to my children, and we did read the Francis Badger books when my children were small, I think I would have perhaps thought of it as a Holocaust novel, but maybe I wouldn't even have recognised it as such. It's only because I came across it in the context of so much that was about the Holocaust that the story became so obvious. With that in mind, let's turn to the adult novels, which, is, as you say, uh, have been overlooked until now. There are eight printed between 1973 and 1998. You describe reading them in sequence, which you did for this article, as exhausting but exhilarating. Can you tell us about that? And where, where did you start? Did you do them chronologically? I did do them chronologically. The only one I'd read was Ridley Walker. And I started at the beginning and I read them through. And I had moments of, of, of resistance when I didn't think I was enjoying them at all. But then I realised I was actually always looking forward to picking them up again and seeing what on earth he was going to do next. And they're exhausting because it's like a sort of roller coaster ride um, in time and space. Um, they're not relaxing novels at all. You're always kept on your toes about what period you're in what the characters are called and in the first novel he has two characters that have the same name but inverted which is really very difficult to read and I kept having to work out and also unpronounceable to boot so I had to keep out working who out which was the father and which was the son so he doesn't make life easy for the reader and as you mentioned earlier um, they're very very heavily loaded all of them, with literary and art, and art and music references. Now to another poem, this one marking 400 years since the birth of Andrew Marvell. The poet Paul Muldoon took Marvell's The Mower to the Glowworms and gave us The Glowworm to the Mower. Since you're unlikely to astound yourself by having more to save than hay, small wonder you've not found why wave upon successive wave would summon far inland sea sounds from a dull scythe or sickle. When Juliana knew down tools to lunch on cheese and pickles atop the triangular mound with its outcrop of hairy vetch, for which your meadow is renowned, it must have felt like the home stretch to a safe harbour. Black whorehound in the shah, the sun a sea gone. All afternoon you would expound on how a mower must be strong, while Juliana, tightly wound as ever, slowly went off script, 
the vetch garland with which she's crowned, having by dusk completely slipped the ties by which lovers are bound, also substantially weakened. We mourn all those poor souls who've drowned because our own inconstant beacons have led to their running aground. Bear in mind, it's by and from you and not the other way around. We glowworms steer and take our cue. Finally, it was this time last year that we marvelled at the apparently chaotic cinematic universe of the filmmaker Jacques Tati, as a five-volume definitive study took a deep dive into his tightly controlled world. Although he only made a handful of films, which were never a hit with, well, anyone much, Tati's legacy and influence remains strong in France, as the critic Muriel Zaga told us. I saw that recently the French Cinémathèque was having a retrospective about Louis de Funès, who is perhaps the most famous comic actor in France and uh, someone who not he was never a filmmaker but but a, a performer but a, a performer who featured in a lot of very very mainstream comedies uh, and the fact that Louis de Funès is being uh, sort of legitimized as a serious performer by la cinémathèque française is is interesting because i think uh, we Tati's reputation is is made but other people are now sort of battering down the door to be taken as seriously as uh, as Tetti. In this country, he's probably better known as um, in the form of Mr. Bean. You know, people would be more familiar with Tetti through the filter of, say, Mr. Bean's incarnation of him or, um, you know, other performers who mimicked his sort of mechanical disruption in the reality. Mm. Uh, It's probably very timely that there is this enormous comprehensive survey of his works because it's it's one thing to see the films and some people might, may have seen Playtime, some people may have seen Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, but you'd get a stronger charge from the films if you look uh, behind the films into uh, the making of the films, the uh, composition of the frames, without getting overly technical, but just trying to understand a little bit more how the films were made and what sort of filmmaker he was. Yes. C- can you, um, could you, uh, this is a difficult thing for me to ask you, I'm afraid, but c- could you just briefly kind of chart the arc of his career for us, how it, how he became um, yeah. this actually rather serious filmmaker, though that's not what he's perceived as? No, so he um, he was born in 1907, and his real name is Tetyshev, because his father was a, a Russian emigre. Interestingly, his first bit of training was uh, as a picture framer, working in the family business of picture framing. So uh, meeting artists, looking at paintings, framing images that was in his blood from a very young age. And then uh, he went into the army and then he discovered sports. He became a keen rugby man and that inspired physical impersonations of his teammates. So on the back of that, he developed a musical number called Impression Sportive and uh, sports impressions. There are eyewitness descriptions of what it was like. And by all accounts, he was the most amazing mind. He, he could be uh, the ball, the foot, the player, the goalposts. He could be everything all at once. So 
uh, that was his first career really it was to be a mime in musical and then uh, he went into filmmaking always really as an independent so he had very early on his first his his own uh, production company his first movie was uh, Jour de Fête straight after the war straight after the second world war that was very very successful and in it he played a sort of hapless postman on a bike on a bicycle and he could have continued to churn out ruthlessly many 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 movies with the same character of this postman uh, but instead of doing that he created the Hulot incarnation so maybe six years later in 1953 in Les Vacances de Monsieur Hulot and then there were four films featuring uh, Hulot this one, and then Mon Oncle, a few years later in the late 50s, and then Traffic, and um, Playtime and Traffic. The first two movies, uh, Hulot's Holiday and uh, Mon Oncle, were tremendous box office successes, really made his name, made his reputation, made some money, so he was able to make more films. And then Playtime and Traffic were total catastrophes and led to bankruptcy. So a really schizophrenic career in that sense, you know, not the sort of arc where someone starts up small and then gradually builds up a reputation and becomes a big star. But I suppose the story of someone who gains gradual control, total control of their output so that he manages to <laughs> alienate a large part of his uh, viewing public. And Traffic was, um, or started out as a collaboration, didn't it, with a with a Dutch filmmaker. So just from the way that you've described him and, and the way that he works, you could sort of see from the outset that that might be doomed to failure. The idea of him collaborating with anyone sounds quite unlikely. Yes, I think that was always very difficult. He did have long-time um, collaborators. as a, a man called Jacques Lagrange, who was his co-screenwriter and gag man who worked with him for a long time. Uh, but there are many, many terrible stories of misfires uh, trying to work together with someone yet somebody else. I think he was probably very, very high maintenance, you know, someone with a complete vision and either you could enter into that vision or uh, that was the end of the collaboration. And so, for example, when it came to writing scores for his films, uh, he hired various people, he gave them a brief, or sometimes he wouldn't give them a brief, he'd say, he'd show them maybe a still from the film and say, off you go, you know, and then the happy composer would try to score something and it would be wrong and then it would be wrong again and you'd have to keep trying the shoots would go on for as long as they needed to so you know the technicians and the actors had to keep going until they got it right according to his specifications so not really the most easygoing person not someone who would uh, work collaboratively very easily yes when you say that and, and from reading your piece you know, if you didn't know it was about a guy in two short trousers with his pipe always sticking out and falls over everything, he sounds like a, a really serious kind of auteur, very, very exacting, control freak, um, concerned with everything from the story to, the, to how it looked to the sound. Is that is that in fact the case? Yes, I think that's probably his paradox. And I mean, his tragedy was that what he wanted was to for people to take comedy seriously enough, sufficiently seriously that they would watch his films with the same sort of exacting uh, attention as he'd put into composing them. Well, it seems right to end 2021 on Tati's absurd, chaos, artful, though his is... Thanks to our listeners for joining us this year. And of course, 
to all our guests. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with a whole new year ahead of us. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.